Hello everybody, it's a late Sunday afternoon and in the moment I'm sitting on the floor of my apartment and I'm looking out of my balcony door into a very nice scenery. So from my present angle I can mainly see the tops of some colorful trees shaking in a wind and I can see the blue sky and everything is bathed in a very bright sunshine. Just a little while ago the sky was cloudy, the temperature was considerably lower and it was even slightly raining. And since I have become a little bit meteorosensitive during the past years, this has affected me, this sudden change. I have got some headache and I was even lying in bed a little bit, which I very seldomly do on afternoons. Anyway, after drinking a few glasses of water, my headaches are gone now. And since I'm not in the mood for anything else to do, I thought, why not recording another episode? So let's see if I can come up with some ideas. Maybe I start with the last episode. There I mentioned a few aspects of the stability of matter, mainly that often matter appears to us to be static, where in reality it's very dynamic. And these hidden dynamic processes are mainly taking place on the microscopic scale. And so, according to modern physics, we should describe them by quantum mechanics. So, why not talking about quantum mechanics in this episode? I have always found the philosophical foundations of quantum mechanics very interesting. And I'm not sure that I talked about this topic enough in my English or in my German podcast. So I have probably at some point mentioned that the reason why I studied physics was indeed because I wanted to learn quantum mechanics. I wanted to learn, of course, its mathematical methods and how to apply them to actual problems from the real world. But more than that, I wanted to really understand the philosophical basis of quantum mechanics. I had read all these books about the measurement problem and about the role of the observer. And I hoped that after taking the beginners and advanced courses on quantum mechanics, I would understand what's going on here. But this hope has not been fulfilled. What you learn in typical university physics courses is this first part about how to apply quantum mechanics to problems. But there is hardly any discussion about what the formalism of quantum mechanics really means. So maybe I should briefly repeat this formalism. Let's say we are interested in a specific system consisting of a few particles. We know the properties of these particles, like their masses and their charges, and we know the interaction forces between the particles. Then. If you want to describe the momentary state of the system in classical mechanics, we simply describe each particle by a specific position in space and by a certain velocity. And we naively assume that this specific configuration of particles corresponds to the real situation out there in the world. And then, if you want to predict how this configuration of particles will evolve over time, we have to solve, for example, the 
Newton's equations of motion. And these are simple ordinary differential equations. So we can compute how the positions and the velocities of all these particles will change in a tiny fraction of time. And if we compute these tiny changes of configuration from one time step to the next, we get the whole evolution of the system over a long period of time. And then we can compare this to the actual experiment. By contrast, in quantum mechanics, we cannot describe the momentary state of a system by simply listing all the positions and velocities of the particles. And this is because, in general, a quantum system is not in a definite quantum state, but, as everybody has heard of, in a superposition of many different quantum states simultaneously. And each of these superposed quantum states corresponds, roughly speaking, to one definite classical state. Now, these classical states are not all equally pronounced in this quantum superposition, but they can have different weights. In quantum mechanics, these weights are complex numbers that change over time according to fixed rules. And for each specific system we are interested in, quantum mechanics tells us exactly how these rules look like. Mathematically, these rules of change are encoded in the Schrödinger equation for the specific system. So when we solve our Schrödinger equation, we can compute how these weights of the different superposed classical states are changing over time. Now, these weights are important because the squared magnitude of such a weight gives us directly the probability that we would measure the corresponding superposed state if we would perform a measurement on the system at this time point. So, the Schrödinger equation is describing the continuous temporal evolution of the probabilities of the different superposed classical states. Now, let's reflect a little bit on how different quantum mechanics and classical mechanics are describing the world. In classical mechanics, we only need a single classical state at each time point. And this state really naturally consists just of a list of independent numbers, such as the positions and velocities of the particles. So this corresponds to our naive assumption that the individual particles still have their independent existence. They are, of course, affecting each other by forces. But classical mechanics still treats these particles as individuals. But note that this is no longer true in quantum mechanics. As we have seen, quantum mechanics describes the world, at least between measurements, as a superposition of classical states, but each of these classical states is kind of holistic. It describes a complete configuration of our considered system of particles, not the particles individually. And if you have a larger number of particles, of course there is an exponentially huge number of possible configurations. Just think that each particle could be at any point in space. And if you want to solve the Schrödinger equation exactly without doing any approximations, you would from the beginning have to consider this whole huge spectrum of possible classical states. It's also interesting that quantum mechanics treats 
these possible configurations of particles in the universe as kind of pre-existing. They are always there, timeless, and all that is changing are these weights which tell us how probable it would be that one of these superposed classical states would realize if we would do a measurement at this time point. And now comes the strange thing. Let's assume that nobody is measuring anything in the universe. Then these complex numbers, these weights, would change their values over time according to the Schrödinger equation. But that would be all that would happen. Yeah, we would have basically no history of the universe. We would have just a changing superposition of possibilities of momentary states which have existed for all the time and which don't change by themselves. So the Schrodinger equation alone really cannot describe that our universe has a definite history with the Big Bang and the formation of the suns and the creation of the elements and planets and life and so on. And so quantum mechanics desperately needs another element and this is the measurement process. Now quantum mechanics describes this measurement process in a very pragmatic way and thereby it avoids all philosophical complications. Quantum mechanics tells us that if we measure certain properties of certain particles then we will get definite measurement results and we can compute the probabilities of these results from these time-dependent weights which the Schrodinger equation describes. But in the same moment when we get these definite results, the whole superposition of classical states which describes the universe at this time point is collapsing. It's collapsing in such a way that all the superposed alternatives which are not compatible with the set of measurement values that we got disappears from this superposition. So, for example, if we are measuring that a molecule is at a given point of time exactly under the tip of our atomic force microscope, then all the possible universes which contain this molecule in different positions in space are ruled out and they disappear from the superposition. But all the remaining superposition will continue to evolve according to the Schrodinger equation. So every time we perform a measurement, we induce a partial collapse of the superposition of states in the universe. And now, of course, comes the main question. What exactly is a measurement? What distinguishes a measurement from any other interaction process in the universe? Okay, let's start with an obvious case of a measurement. We have a physicist. She goes to her lab turns on the atomic force microscope, puts something under the tip, moves around and suddenly sees this molecule. Seeing the molecule, of course, here just means that her computer is producing some colorful pictures on the monitor, which has something to do with what is under the tip. But okay, this counts as a measurement, right? But if we view this measurement process from the standpoint of a pure materialist, then we have to say that this physicist is just a bunch of molecules moving around and making physical interactions with a particle under the tip. In other words, 
the physicist is just a regular part of all the other molecules in the universe. So she's a part of the superposition of classical states. And so she certainly has no ability to let this wave function collapse. In fact, from the materialist point of view, the fact that our physicist is a human being is not important at all here. It could equally be a robot, or we could just have some automated measurement machine. But here we have the same problem. This measurement machine consists of ordinary molecules. It's just a part of the whole universe and therefore should have no extra power to make this wave function collapse. So summing up, the Schrödinger equation by itself has no mechanism by which a part of the whole universe, which is completely material, could make the whole wave function collapse. All the interactions between these ordinary matter particles in the universe are already calculated into the evolution of this Schrödinger equation. But the measurement process is something completely different, something abrupt, which suddenly causes this collapse of the wave function. And it's not a part of this continuous evolution. So there must be something which is not material, which causes the wave function to collapse. And therefore, some of the founding fathers of quantum mechanics came naturally to the idea that consciousness may be this thing which is outside of the material world and which has maybe the power to collapse wave functions. So if this is true, we would definitely need an organism with a consciousness in order to have these wave function collapses. So for example, if we would have this automated measurement machine which is recording the positions of some molecules under the atomic force microscope, then as long as our female physicist is not coming in and looking at the data and registering this data in her consciousness, until that point we would still have this continuous superposition thing of the Schrodinger equation going on, no collapse. But as soon as the consciousness registers definite outputs, we get a definite world state. So that would mean that By observing our surroundings, which is also a kind of measurement, we make definitely this wave function collapse and we create out of the superposition of possibilities a reality. So this was the fascinating idea which I had at the time when I was finishing high school and when I decided to become a physicist. And I hoped that these philosophical implications would be discussed in depth during the university courses, but this was not the case at all. I had such discussions privately with my friends, and up till now I'm continuously reading books about that. But yeah, I don't know why universities don't consider it necessary to discuss these points. Uh, I think it's, it's very important that we connect science to our real worldview And this is one of the most uh, important connections. And if it's not never discussed, this leads in the end to people who become professional physicists, but they have sometimes less philosophical education than normal people. Although they are working day by day, uh, solving the Schrodinger equation and similar things, they never think about the philosophy behind it. And this is very strange, I think. Anyway, reality is even worse than that.
for some reason, the idea that it may be consciousness which causes the wave function to collapse has become associated with some woo-woo ideas from the, from the hippie area. <laughs> and so serious physicists, in quotation marks, even avoided talking about this, this embarrassing uh, topic. And so they came up with some alternatives which seemed to settle this question of the measurement problem. And one of the very prominent theories of this kind was the decoherence theory. So it would be a little bit difficult to describe decoherence theory without using any pictures and formulas. And so I like you to watch a video from Sabine Hossenfelder, who described this in a very, very simple and uh, easy way. I will put the link to the show note. But maybe I can give you just the gist of this idea. So in quantum mechanics, there are different ways of describing quantum states. And one of these ways is by using the so-called density matrix. So Let's describe this in a very simple example. Let's say you have a single particle which has a spin which can point up or down. So these are two possible classical states. And this particle is assumed to be in a superposition of these two states. Then this density matrix which describes the system is a matrix of two by two numbers, so four numbers, arranged in a square. And the left upper number if you take the modulus squared, describes the probability of the system to be in the spin-down state. The lower right number describes the probability of being in the spin-up state. And the other two numbers in this matrix describe interference terms between the two superposed quantum states. So these two extra numbers are also complex numbers. And now, in decoherence theory, they assume that you have not only this particle which you want to measure, but in addition you have some uncontrolled stray particles flying around, yeah? because your, your lab is never completely isolating this particle from the rest of the universe. So there are always some particles flying around, which may disturb your spin. And under certain conditions, you can show that the effect of a particle flying by, our particle of interest, is mainly to change the values of these non-diagonal elements of the density matrix. So these two extra numbers which describe the interference terms between the quantum states. And if you would just have some particular particle flying by this measurement apparatus in a specific path, this would lead to a certain time-dependent disturbance of this non-diagonal element of the density matrix. So in the end, after the particle has left, there would be a changed value of this matrix element. It would be not zero, but simply changed. But now comes a very strange move. Now people assume that, of course, in principle, these stray particles which are coming by can fly in all possible directions. And so what they now do is they perform an average of the density matrix over all possible paths of these stray particles. And then if you perform this average over all possible perturbations of your, of your quantum system, then it turns out that these non-diagonal elements of the density matrix become zero. And then these decoherence fans say, yeah, we have shown now 
that simple interaction of a quantum particle with the environment leads to a collapse of the wave function. <laughs> but in my opinion, this is complete bullshit. Because even though these non-diagonal elements are becoming zero, you still have these finite values in your diagonal elements of the density matrix. And these diagonal elements describe the probabilities to find your spin either in the up or down state. So even after all this averaging and so on, and over the, after the perturbation by the system, you still have the superposition of two classical states with different probabilities. So you still have your superposition of possibilities and the system has not decided for a definite classical state. And on top of that, I think that this whole averaging is not valid here. Because in a particular experiment, you don't have all possible kinds of stray particles coming by. You have a specific subset. And this is not the same as an average. So if you would not compute an average, you would still have some non-diagonal elements left. So I think this whole argument of decoherence theory does not show anything of interest, except that maybe the interference effects between the superposed quantum states are affected by perturbations, which, however, has nothing to do with this strange measurement problem itself. And so I personally think that the measurement problem has not been solved at all. And I'm, by the way, not alone with this opinion. And furthermore, I still believe that consciousness is the most promising candidate for this non-material entity, which could possibly be the reason of wave function collapses.